words cannot express how thankful I am that Pastor Crawford got to read that list of Hebrew names from Exodus 6. Saints, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we'll read the first 11 verses there. Mark 14, and beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in the memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Something that will help us to read our Bibles better is to come to recognize certain themes and certain literary structures that run throughout the whole of Scripture, that are found in particular genres of Scripture, and that are found in particular books of the Bible, and we come to just such a theme and structure this evening here in, in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, as we introduce really the passion narrative of our Lord. This is where it begins. And the structure that we have uh, is what some refer to as a sandwich structure, uh, where you have two stories, one are your two slices of bread, and then you have story two sandwiched in between them. So story A, story B, back to story A. And the key, the interpretive key, the theological key to both stories is the meat, the bologna, spam, the good stuff, right? Right there in the center. Story B. And that's what we have here. But we also come to a a familiar theme, if you're familiar with the gospel according to Mark. It's a theme that really permeates every line. And it's found explicitly in the very center, the heart of Mark's gospel, and it's this question. Who do you say that I am? That is what Mark is pressing upon us. Who do you say that this Jesus Christ is? What is the response of humanity 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the questions that permeate this book and that, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit will press upon us this evening. Uh, These are the inescapable questions that are pressed upon every man, woman, boy, and girl that draws breath. These are the questions, dear one, that you do and will answer and that you will answer for. And so these are the most important questions. Who do you say that I am? There is a stark, a stark contrast set before us here on the pages of Scripture, uh, two kinds of very different responses to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first seen in verses 1 and 2, and then 10 and 11. This is story A, our bread, right? It's the response of the Sanhedrin and Judas to Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, one of rejection, betrayal, and murder. And the second, the meat, story B, is the overwhelming love of an unnamed woman who did what she could in giving all that she had and all that she was to the Savior who was about to die for her sins. Faith and rejection, love and betrayal, the response of humanity to this Jesus Christ, the only responses of humanity to this Jesus Christ. And so you see there is no indifference There is no neutrality. Love or betrayal? Faith or rejection? And the question is, which is yours? Every figure in this narrative from Mark 14, not one of them is from out there in the world. They're all a part of the covenant community. Who do you say that I am? We're going to look at this, these two contrasting responses to Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Savior of sinners, under those two headings, rejection and betrayal, or love and dedication. Verse 1, after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this is certainly a time and place stamp. It's Wednesday, by our calendars, uh, and the great celebration of the Passover is upon Jerusalem. One of the most important Jewish feasts celebrating that great redemption that God wrought in the land of Egypt. The location is Jerusalem, and if you are familiar with Mark, we've been in, in Jerusalem since chapter 11, and we're going to stay in Jerusalem until the end. Uh, Here, our Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has just left the temple. As we come into chapter 14, he's just left the temple. And we could go back to some of the prophets and see what's happening here is the glory has departed. And now rest upon the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city and the temple, And from there, the just judge of all the earth declared the cataclysmic end of the old covenant, of the old covenant life and worship, the destruction of the temple that lie at the heart of Jewish life with all of its sacrifices and washings, with its priesthood, with all of its feasts and ceremonies, all of its types and shadows. And he sets himself forth as the one who would die and rise again, fulfilling all of those types and shadows of the temple. And and so you see, this simple sentence, after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is actually more than a mere timestamp. It's more than a place marker. It's connecting everything that follows, including what follows in verses 3 through 9, and then the Lord's Supper, and then the crucifixion, It's connecting it all to the Passover. 
and to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover celebration, you, you'll recall, it, it recalled that night in Egypt when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt, killing the firstborn in every home, but passing over those homes covered by the blood of the Lamb. Refuse the blood? Death. The Lamb pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And the very next day after the Passover was the week-long celebration of unleavened bread, celebrating that period when Israel traveled to the Red Sea in haste. A period where they ate unleavened bread. No, no leaven spoke of that rushed, hurried manner in which the Passover was eaten. They didn't have time for the yeast to do its work. They had to go. It was a new beginning, and it was a new life. Leaven would come uh, to represent this in a way because it would come to, to represent corruption. Sin is like leaven, and just a little bit spreads and infects the whole lump. The leaven is connected with Egypt, and they were that, that the, the Egypt that they were leaving behind, and they were not to take any Egypt with them. You look at those first those opening verses of, of Leviticus 18. You're not to do what they did in Egypt. You're not taking Egypt with you. And you're not to do what they do in Canaan where you're going. You're to be set apart. The old leaven stood for the former life, but God had delivered them unto a new life. It pointed forward to the new life that Christ would give to those covered with his redeeming blood. Not a mere time stamp, this simple line, but setting the stage for what was happening right here In the passage, the types and shadows becoming realities in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 1, the Passover and the death of Christ are bound together, and the passion has begun. How would he get there? How would he get to Calvary's cross? By those who would reject the blood of the Lamb. Verses 1 and 2, the same opponents that have dogged our Lord from the beginning of the gospel account, uh, the chief priest and the scribes. We've seen uh, throughout the gospels their repeated attempts to catch Jesus in his words, their challenges to his ministry and mission. He was a threat to their authority. And that's really the root of their opposition to him. He's a challenge to the power structure, which they're at the top of. And now that the Passover's come, there are hundreds of thousands of people gathered in and around Jerusalem, and they fear losing the crowds to this Jesus. The authority of Jesus Christ is the real kicker for these religious leaders of Israel. And beloved, the authority of Jesus Christ is the real kicker for men, women, and children today. There's a view that one can receive this Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. No submission. That's a sure sign that one has not received this Jesus. They try to redefine who Jesus Christ is to make him who they they want him to be, to create a God upon their own terms, and there's a word for that, uh, and it's called idolatry. For some, Jesus is a good teacher, a wonderful example of love, but not King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom every knee will bow and tongue confess. An inspirational figure, but a man 
A good man, but just a man. Beloved, that is not a Jesus Christ who can save. If that's who Jesus Christ is, he's worthless to you. That is not a Christ who can save sinners. If Jesus is only such as all that, then you are sitting here dead in trespasses and sins with no hope in the world. We like to think that we're autonomous, that, that God's there to give us what we want to make us feel better about ourselves, but not a God full of power and glory and majesty to whom, all, uh, to whom is owed all obedience and absolute submission. As, as you see upon the pages of Mark's gospel account, when you come to see this Jesus Christ for who he is in himself, there's only one response. And that is complete and entire submission to his will, to his authority. These scribes and chief priests will not submit to the Lord of glory, and so they seek a way to kill him. And it just so happens uh, that Judas seeks a way as well. Verse 10 and 11, Judas, Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought a way how he might conveniently betray him. Judas becomes the answer to all the dark hopes and dreams, to the wicked desires of these religious leaders, they are glad. Betrayal, false charges, murder makes them glad. And what must have gone through their minds when Judas walked through their door? They're they're plotting, brainstorming for a way. After this, Jesus has bested them every attempt they've made to catch him. And in walks one of his own to betray the Savior of sinners. It's the hand of God. And of course, it is the hand of God. It's the hand of God, they would have said. God's blessing our efforts. He's he's vindicating us. This proves that we're right in what we're doing. And John 18 reveals that these two parties, the the scribes, Pharisees, uh, chief priests, and, and Judas, they made careful plans together that evening. Judas knew of a place where Jesus would be away from the crowd, so no public scene would be made. He would receive a a detachment of troops. And we know why the chief priest and the scribes want Jesus dead, but why does Judas want Jesus dead? Jesus had chosen for himself 12 men. He handpicked 12 men for intimate fellowship, as, as the gospel says, that they might be with him. Judas was one of the most privileged men to walk this earth. Judas was not just any man. He spent three and a half years with God in the flesh. He was taught by him day and night, ate with him every day, labored with him every day. Jesus, uh, rather, Judas knew Jesus intimately. Jesus counted him a friend, and he used his intimate knowledge to make a very detailed plan to hand this Jesus over. For what? Well, we know that he did it for 30 pieces of silver. It would have been about three to four months' wages, the cost of a slave in the Roman Empire. And we know that Judas was a worldly man. John tells us that as the treasurer for Jesus' ministry, he was robbing the Lord. He was a thief. He loved money. And all these years of kindness and patience and gentle teaching, and he robs the one who preached the gospel to him. He robbed and betrayed the one who declared, Come unto me, all ye who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. Judas 
was constantly under the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the love of the world and the things in the world, he would betray the Son of God to death. And he would come under the eternal judgment of Almighty God. You want to know where love of the world gets you? Love of wealth, love of things, love of pleasure and fun, love of fame and popularity and position, love of power. It gets you the eternal judgment of Almighty God, who is a consuming fire. And now the name of Judas is forever associated with betrayal and eternal punishment. Beloved, the response of the chief priest and Judas to this Jesus Christ is the standard default position of humanity. Every single man, woman, little boy, and little girl, apart from the redeeming grace of God in Christ, every single person that draws breath, their default response, their heart inclination is to reject this Jesus. They would rather murder him than submit to him. And we ourselves, as those conceived and born in sin, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, have this same inclination to reject Jesus Christ. Do not underestimate the power of sin. Judas, a close friend of Jesus, remarkable privileges, walked away from him. And didn't just walk away from him, but betrayed him unto death for the price of a slave. He betrayed the Lord of glory for the cost of a slave. He had a price. Beloved, you, sitting here this evening, you have remarkable privileges. Do you have a price? You have closeness to Christ right here this evening. Do you have a price like Judas did? This is the dark backdrop against which the brightness of the second story shines. It's a a stark contrast to the murderous rejection and betrayal of the scribes and Judas, one of devotion to Jesus, love to Jesus, faith in Jesus. Verse 3, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, you'll notice immediately a, a, a change in location. The scribes and the chief priest, Judas, they are in Jerusalem the holy city, the seat of power. They're walking the halls of power. And here we shift to Bethany, a little town outside of Jerusalem at the base of the Mount of Olives. But more than that, we're in the home of a leper. You can't go much lower. Now, he would have been recovered from his leprosy. Otherwise, no one would have been able to be with him. But the stigma of the uncleanness of leprosy remains. No doubt the scars are are on his body. He would have been viewed with suspicion and fear. No one would want to enter his house, a house that had harbored leprosy. And it's here that a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. John tells us that uh, this unnamed woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom our Lord had raised from the dead, and and, and she, she wiped his feet with her hair. This doesn't catch us off guard, does it? But it should, because this is stunning. Culturally, this is absolutely repulsive. You see, what she did just wasn't done in that day. And what I'm referring to is the audacity that she had to interrupt male fellowship. 
It broke all the social convention. And it's surely significant that it's, it's a woman whose devotion is center stage. And it's also surely significant that, that here at the end of Jesus' life, as in at the beginning, he has costly treasures lavished upon him. The flask of perfume Mark stresses its value. Uh, it, it's very likely a family heirloom handed down. It, it's something sentimental and precious, but it's also something expensive, valued uh, at a year's wages, a whole year's salary. I, I don't know what that even means in our terms. Forty grand, sixty grand, whatever. But I hope already that the contrast with Judas is so glaringly obvious for a fraction of that. He betrayed the Lord of glory. He desired such monetary gain, worldly gain, and here's Mary with, with four times as much in her hand, pouring it out in a moment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no thought to worldly gain because the living God was set before her. She only had thoughts of and for her dear Savior. And with this costly gift, she's saying, My Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing too good for you. My best. Here's my very best. And it's the least that I can give. The devotion of this woman to her Lord, the the extravagant love of this woman for her Savior. Beloved, is that what your heart desires to do for this Jesus Christ? Your very best. Your all as the very least that you could give him. Jesus says in verse 6, she's done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus Christ himself was the absolute focus of her devotion, the extravagance of her love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice the contrast, the cold, calculating religion of the chief priest and the extravagant heart, love, and devotion of Mary. Sometimes our responses to Jesus are, are, are chalked up to culture, You know, in this culture, emotional displays, uh, affectionate displays are just not what you do. Uh, And it's true that we have different constitutions and and dispositions. In my family, uh, there are always two sides at a funeral service. You've got the stoic side, and then you have my family, and you can't hear anything going on because of the bellowing. Uh, We have different dispositions. But all of that aside, it's not culture here, nor is it ever. She's acting against culture because she knew who this Jesus was and what he's going to do for her. And it filled her heart with love and joy unspeakable, full of glory that pervades culture, that pervades temperament and disposition. Her actions are a challenge to our religion. Her actions were fiercely criticized, and you see that in verses 4 and 5, they, they were angry with her, not only for breaking social protocol and acting quite out of place for a woman, but, but for wasting, notice that word, wasting something so valuable. The language used by Mark can't be underestimated. They were indignant. Uh, they criticized her sharply. They were so furious with her that they were going to physically remove her from the home. These are believers, these, these aren't Pharisees. These are, uh, you read parallel passages, the disciples are present here, and this is their response. In their view, this woman wasted this costly oil, and it's a striking declaration of her valuation of the Lord Jesus Christ. She understands his greatness and worth, and, and she says, even this isn't enough. Did what I could. It's not enough. 
Jesus praises her action while the disciples criticize it. He says she's done a, a good work, a beautiful work to me. He sees her heart for him and their heartlessness. And, and now we have to acknowledge they have a concern for the poor, right? And that's good and that's right. But Jesus says this woman realizes something that you don't. You're going to have the poor with you always. But this woman sees what's before her right now. Her Savior, her King, her God. Something infinitely more valuable than caring for the poor. But I think there's something else here. Who in the Bible is the poor man? Who is the poor man? You read through the Psalms and and who's the poor man? 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? Poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Mary was giving to the poor. She was pouring herself out for the poor. The poor man was receiving all that she had. And why was she pouring fragrant oil upon the Lord Jesus Christ? That, That seems to be a rather strange act does it not? The reason's connected back to verse 1, back to the Passover. Back to the looming death of the Savior. And you see in that day, as in ours, there is an embalming process, uh, a preparation for burial. Everything here is leading to the cross. Everything's leading to that sin-atoning, wrath-appeasing, soul-saving death of Jesus Christ. And, And there's no doubt in my mind that she knew what she was doing. Dimly, perhaps, she was doing more than she fully understood, perhaps, but she knew who this was before and what he had come to do. That this is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, and so she's come to anoint my body for burial, he says. It was preparation for what was to take place in just two short days. The woman's response to Jesus Christ, she believed in him as the Savior, the one who would rescue her from her sin, and she loved him, and she expressed that love in selfless, sacrificial devotion. She understood something of what Jesus had come to do, and, and, and being forgiven much, she loved much. And so she did what she could. Beloved, do you do what you can for the Savior? This is a question that shames me to the dust. She did what she could. What about me? How little I do for he who died to bring me to God. Verse 9, Jesus memorializes her actions. And and just as every word of the Lord proves true, so here it's it's fulfilled in this day amongst us. The the extravagant love of this woman for her Savior is told some 2,000 years later, the influence of her actions still reverberating around the world. You never know, beloved. You never know what kind of influence your devotion to the Savior might have on other people. You never know the person watching from the corner of this room, your, your children, as you seek to live for Christ and give Him your best, your all godly living, love to Christ and thought, word, and deed, beloved, is gospel witness. I can't help but wonder if this is what did it for Judas. 
This extravagant love for Jesus, this costly ointment, whole year's salary. Is this what unmasked him to have been in the presence of someone with an all-consuming love for Jesus Christ, exposing the, the shallowness of his own heart? And this shames me as well. If you've ever been in the presence of someone who's just godly, they don't even have to speak. They're just godly. They have an all-consuming love for Jesus. It pours out in the way they talk and the things that they say, the things that they do, the way that they carry themselves. Their, their faces, like Moses leaving the tent, uh, shine with the glory of God, and, and it makes you a little uncomfortable. I think this is what happened with Judas. Oh, that we would have the kind of devoted heart love for the Savior as this woman, a woman who was publicly unashamed of Christ, who broke all social protocols for Christ, who, who faced the criticisms of society, of friends, of family for Christ because she loved him above all else. Beloved, the world will, will tolerate radical things. Radical things. Fanatics of all sorts. It'll celebrate them. But it will not tolerate this. This devotion to Jesus Christ because this kind of fervor the world does not understand because it doesn't know him. Her response of extravagant love and selfless, total dedication to Jesus is her response to extravagant grace. Beloved, extravagant love for Christ is always, always, and only the response to extravagant grace. It's one of my professors, Ian Hamilton, says, such devotion will never be squeezed out of you. It can only be sweetly drawn from you as you marvel at the grace of God. Beloved, do you marvel at the grace of God? That he died for you. This Jesus Christ died for you. Are the words of this woman, Mary, the words of Isaac Watts in that great hymn, are they your words? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. May the Lord sweetly draw us to himself, that we might pour ourselves out for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed, we look upon this woman Mary and Oh, how we desire such a heart, a heart for the Savior, but Lord, a heart for the Savior because the Savior's heart for her and his heart for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that, that we would be taken out of our depth by such grace, by such love, by such glory. It's too much for us, but being taken out of our depth, Lord, that we would be encouraged and 
purpose to do what we can, giving nothing less than our very selves and all that we are and all that we have for the cause of this Jesus Christ in the world. And Father, for no other reason than to heap glory and glory and glory upon him. We pray indeed that he'd be glorified in this, this worship. And Father, as we walk out of here with our faces shining, in every word, flowing from every thought, and then in every deed, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.